Again, good morning. It is good to be with you. Uh, again, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Um, we're glad that you're with us this morning as we worship our God. Uh, the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is from John chapter 21. John chapter 21. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to John 21. The passage is also printed in your order of service, and there, is, uh, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You can grab one of those. It's, it's always good for us to have a copy of God's Word open to us. So whether it's a, a physical paper copy or on your phone, I'll just assume uh, if you're looking at your phone, you're not live tweeting, um, but, uh, but you're looking at God's Word. But it is good for us to have God's Word open, so I'd encourage you to do that. Um, and in John 21, uh, what we're going to see is a conversation. Uh, it's a conversation that we've been waiting to happen, a conversation that's been uh, a few chapters in the making. See, we saw Peter a few weeks ago. He, he sat by a charcoal fire. He sat in a courtyard of a, of a home, and as he sat there, he denied our Lord three times. He had said to Jesus, he had assured him he would never deny him, that he would stand with him, that he would go all the way to his death if it required that to follow him. But, but there Peter denied him. And then we have last week where Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He's risen, he lives, the tomb is empty. But, but in our passage last week, Peter didn't see the resurrected Jesus. He didn't have a conversation with him. He saw the empty tomb. He heard the witness account of Mary, but, but he has not spoken with him yet. Our passage this morning that we're going to read, it tells us that this is the third occurrence of Jesus appearing before the disciples, and yet there is still this conversation looming, this conversation between Peter and Jesus. We're finally going to hear it in our passage, and so let's go ahead and follow along. John 21, beginning in verse 9. When they, that is the disciples, got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was, was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. 
the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Now, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our King, I acknowledge this morning that I and we are all in need of your grace and your help. Father, I need your help so that my words would give you glory and honor you. We all need your help so that the meditations of our hearts would please you. And so we ask through your spirit that you would, uh, that you would be with, present with us. And that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to please you. Our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. On October 14th. 2003, the Chicago Cubs were five outs away from the World Series. It was the top of the eighth inning. There was one out. Uh, the batter for the Florida Marlins stood there, and, and the Cubs were, were five outs away. They were looking good. They were winning three to nothing. Five outs away from finally going to the World Series, their first World Series since 1945. It looked like it, this was going to be the year that they would finally get rid of the curse of the billy goat. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Others of you think what is, <laughs> that is weird. <laughs> and it is a little weird. But, but they were close. It seemed like this was going to be the year that they were finally going to make it to the World Series and maybe even win it. So there they are, the top of the eighth, the batter for the Florida Marlins. He, he hits a ball down the left field line and starts to veer off into the stands. Moises Alou, the, the left fielder for the Chicago Cubs, comes running over, and it's not far enough into the stands that he cannot reach over, and so he starts leaning into the stands to catch the ball. And just before the ball enters his glove for the second out, another glove intercedes and knocks the ball away, and the ball falls safe, safely on the ground. That glove was the glove of Steve Bartman, now, Steve Bartman is no player for the Chicago Cubs. He's a fan. He had been sitting in the stands, and, and when the ball had been hit and started to veer off into the stands, that's all he was focused on was this ball, and so he didn't even see Moises Alou come over to make the catch. Well, the ball landed, and if you know how the game went, well, everything fell apart for the Cubs after that. The, the next batter got a hit, and that three-run lead soon evaporated. And, and in the next inning, the Florida Marlins took the lead and they won the game. And then they won the next game. And the Cubs, well, they lost again. I, I say that with a little bit of a smile on my face. I'm sorry. But they did. They lost again. And they had lost at the hands of one of their fans. Isn't that awful? It was one of their fans. It, it wasn't a Marlins fan. It wasn't a Cardinals fan, not to put it past one of them. But, uh, <laughs> but it, was, it was a Cubs fan. Steve Bartman, he was wearing his Cubs hat. He was listening to the game. He was a huge fan of the Cubs, and he was the one who had knocked the ball away. And so you can imagine what was going through his 
mind, what was going through his heart after he had knocked that ball away, right? He's sad, he's grieved that he had done this, but his grief was nothing in, compared, in comparison to the anger that the Chicago faithful had for him. You see, they started yelling obscenities at him during the game, and security had to escort him out. Fans were throwing things at him and pouring their drinks on his head. The police had to be called to protect he and his family in his home. He was this fan, and now he was public enemy number one. He was once part of the family, the Chicago Cubs family, and now he was outside of the family. He was outside looking in. Right? He didn't show up for game seven. And he didn't go to a bar to watch the game because he knew. He knew that he had committed in the Chicago faithful mind the unforgivable sin. He was no longer part of the family. He was no longer accepted. He was the enemy. He was on the outside looking in. Now I can imagine that that's what Peter was thinking as he sat by that charcoal fire that morning. I mean, do you remember the last time we saw a charcoal fire in the book of John? It was just a few weeks ago. Peter was sitting by a charcoal fire, and at that charcoal fire, he was denying Jesus three times. And so I can imagine that as he's sitting on the beach with this charcoal fire in between him and the Lord, all the things that he has done is running through his mind. The ways that he had so, so forcefully boasted that he would never deny Jesus. And then the ways that he crumbled so quickly. I'm sure that that's just running through his mind, right? And, and so surely he's sitting there thinking, maybe I'm outside now. Maybe I'm now public enemy number one. I once was in, I was part of the inner circle, but now maybe I'm on the outside looking in. I can imagine this running through his head, right? What could Jesus say? What might he say, right? We've, we've experienced that. We Kids, when you've done something wrong, when you've disobeyed your parents and they say to you, you need to go to your room and I'm going to come up there and we're going to talk in a little bit, right? What goes through your mind as you hear those footsteps coming up the stairs and walking down the hall and the door opens, right? The, the worry and the concern that wells up inside you because maybe dad is going to come in angry. Maybe mom's going to list all the ways that I messed up. Maybe they're going to give me the I told you so speech. Not that parents ever do that. <laughs> it's not just kids who know this. We know this too, right adults? I mean, we we treat our friend poorly, and then we see them at a gathering with other people, and we wonder, are, are we going to talk about this? Are, are they just going to ignore it? Are, are they going to just let me sit in, in my own overwhelmed grief and let me stew on it internally? Or when we're harsh with our spouse, are, are they going to be passive-aggressive with us? Are we going to deal with the elephant in the room? Right? We start running through all of our heads, right? all the different things that could be said and what should be said and what we expect to be said. And the anxiety and the fear that builds. It's not hard for us to imagine Peter thinking about those things because those are the things that we think about, aren't they? They run through our heads. Will Jesus say anything? Is he going to pretend that it never happened? Is he about to give his I told you so speech? And if anyone could give the I told you so speech, it was Jesus, right? He prophesied, Peter, you're going to do this. And lo and behold, he did it. Maybe 
Jesus is going to say, Peter, it's time for you to get up. And you need to walk away because you're no longer part of the family. And you know what the truth is, is that if Jesus would have done any of those things, if he would have said any of those things, the truth is, is that Peter would have deserved them. And so too would we. I mean, we've denied Jesus through our sin. We've rebelled against him. We've shown that we, we actually deserve to be outside of the family. We should be on the outside looking in, but that's not what Jesus says. That's not what he does. He doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't explode in anger. He doesn't give Peter the guilt trip. He doesn't say, I told you so. Instead, what does he do? He restores him. He forgives him. He draws him close. He renews him. And Jesus does this with Peter through a meal. That's how it begins. A meal that leads to a question. So the disciples, they get out of the water, right? They've been working and laboring all night. They've been fishing. They've been out on the water. And so surely they're famished. And in verse 10, Jesus says, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And then verse 12, come and have breakfast. Jesus feeds them. He feeds them. That's how he starts to bring Peter near to him. It's over a meal. Now, at first, at first thought, this might seem odd to us, right? I mean, why a meal? Why is it that Jesus is going to have this meal with him? But, but when we think about the scripture and the whole of scripture, it's actually not that surprising. Because very often throughout scripture, God invites fellowship with himself amongst his people through a meal. So think about the Passover, right? In Exodus, God's people are delivered out of Egypt, and how are they supposed to celebrate this deliverance with a meal, the Passover meal? In the Old Testament holy days, oftentimes a meal was associated with it, and in the New Testament, Jesus, his first miracle at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, what does he do? He takes water, and he turns it into wine, and he serves the people. And Jesus ate, so often that he was called a drunkard and a glutton. This is what he's doing again and again and again. By the way, Jesus wasn't a drunkard, he wasn't a glutton, right? Those were his enemies that were saying those things. But, but he was eating nonetheless again and again. And in fact, we could say that the entire Bible is actually bookended with meals, isn't it? Genesis 3 is, un, in, is an unholy meal where Adam and Eve eat when they should not have. And then in Revelation, what we have is when God consummates his eternal kingdom, how does he do it? It's with the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so there's eating all over the place in Scripture. But why? I mean, does God just like food? Jesus just has a refined palate? Yes, God does like food. He made it. It's good. Right? It's beautiful, it tastes good, it's appealing to the senses, but it's much more than that. You see, in this culture, to eat with someone was to invite them into your life. It was to associate with them in, in a deep way. This is why Jesus took so much flack for his dinner companions. Throughout the Gospels, the religious leaders and the religious authorities, they were getting mad at Jesus because he wasn't eating just with them, but who was he eating with? Tax collectors, who are basically thieves and sinners. And now he's eating with deniers. And he's eating with doubters. 
and he's eating with those who had abandoned him. And he's doing this as a way of inviting them to return to fellowship with him. And he doesn't just do that with the disciples, he does that with us. You see, there's still one meal I never mentioned, right? It's the meal that we're going to partake of in a little bit, right? We're going to come and we're going to eat bread and drink wine and we're going to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. And we're going to eat at this table and in this table, Jesus communes with his people. Not physically, he's not present in that way, but through the means of his Holy Spirit, we have communion with him. We have fellowship with him around his table. This is the sign that he has given us, the ongoing symbol of our relationship with him. A meal. But the meal isn't an end of its, in itself, right? It, it actually leads to a question, and we see that in this passage. That after the meal is done, Jesus asks Peter three times the same question in verse 15, 16, and 17. And it's clear that he's asking this question three times to mirror the threefold denial of Peter. And so Jesus asks, do you love me? That's the question he asks three times, do you love me? Now I just want you to think about that because... Um, this might seem very surprising to us. M maybe, maybe for those of us who have read this passage many times, it's, it's not that shocking. But, but if we were to hear this for the first time, it, it might seem a little strange because, because Peter has committed a great sin. And so don't we think, shouldn't we expect Jesus to say, not do you love me, but do you believe in me? Do you trust me? Peter, are you grieved over what you've done to me? And those would have been good questions, right? Those would have been important questions. But what Jesus is getting at is the greatest of questions, the, the most important question. Do you love me? Do you love me? That's what Jesus is driving at. What is of greatest importance? Where is Peter's heart? You know, the American theologian Jonathan Edwards, he once said, that he that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only, without affection, never is engaged in the business of religion. So do you hear what he's saying? So this, like, this is like uber smart Jonathan Edwards. And what he said is, if all you have is doctrinal knowledge and speculation and you do not have love, then you don't have true religion. You don't have Christ. And really what Edwards is saying is what Jesus has been saying throughout the Gospels. The repeated theme of Jesus is love. I mean, that's what he taught. What is the greatest commandment? That you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and strength. When, when Jesus talked to his disciples about what it meant to follow him, he said, to follow me means that you will love me more than brother or sister, more than father or mother. You will love me more than anything else. That is the constant and consistent theme of Jesus, that he is to be our first love, that we are to love him more than family, that we are to love him more than job, that we are to love him more than bank account or prestige. And so that's why he asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And he asked us that, that question as well. Do you love him? You know, let me just say that that, that, is, that is the most important question you could wrestle with today. 
that might be the most important question that you can wrestle with for the rest of your life. Do you love him? How does Peter respond? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I do. You know everything. You know that I love you. And I know many of you, and many of you would say the same, right? You would say, Jesus, I I do love you. I love you imperfectly. (laughs) I fail and I falter, but yes, I love you. But what does love look like? I mean, what does it look like to love Jesus? That's an important question because we use that word so flippantly in our day, right? We, we love our favorite TV show. We, uh, we love tacos. We, we love movies. We love our homes, right? We, we use that word so flippantly that it really almost has no meaning at all. So what does it look like to love Jesus? Well, what we're going to see is that those who love Jesus are actually called by Jesus. And that's what Jesus directs Peter to. That's how he directs Peter. You see, it's not just a meal that leads to a question, but the question leads to a calling. It leads to a calling. And what is that calling? What is the demonstration of our love for Christ? It's to follow him. That's what Jesus says in verse 19 to Peter. He says, follow me. This is mirroring some of the very first words that Jesus had for his disciples. You remember that our series in the life of Peter began very similarly to this passage, right? It was on a lake, and Jesus was on the shore, and the disciples were out on the lake in their boat, and he said, cast your nets, right? And they said, okay, sure, you know, we know what we're doing. And they cast them, and they pulled in the greatest haul of their lives. And what did Jesus say to them? Come follow me. And a few weeks ago, we heard he said that if you're going to be my disciples, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Some of the very first words he said to his disciples are some of the last words he says to them. You are to follow me. That You are to follow me wherever I will call you. Wherever I will lead you. For Peter, this meant straight to his death. It's what verses 18 and 19 are alluding to. Peter's martyrdom. That Peter, you said that you would follow me to your death. Well, you will. That's what Jesus is telling him. That to follow after Jesus, Peter will go to his death. But, but this following isn't just the martyrdom of Peter. We see that it has a specific aspect as well. You see what he says after every single time, do you love me? Lord, I do. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. So this had specific, particular meaning for Peter and for any of the church leaders who would come after Peter, as Peter enumerates in 1 Peter 5. But what Jesus is telling him and telling all those who would come after him, that those who would lead his church, that our love for him will manifest itself in caring for his people. But even if you're not a leader in the church, this has implications for you. Because the truth is, is that we all need to be fed. And we all need to be tended. That for our love for Christ to grow, we need to be fed by Christ. We need to be tended by him. And we know this intuitively. Like, right, this, this spring, right, many of you are working in your yards. You're trying to make your grass green, right? And you're planting your flowers in their flower beds. And you're putting seedlings in your in your uh, vegetable gardens, and so what do you do? Well, if 
if you're really trying to make them grow, you don't just stick it in the ground and walk away, right? You care for it. You put fertilizer in the ground, and you tend the soil by picking out the weeds, right? So that the crop, the, the grass, and the vegetable, and the flower can grow, and it can be healthy. You tend to it, and you feed it. And the same is true for our souls. We need to be fed. Our hearts need to be tended. And the way in which we are fed and the way in which we are tended is through God's very word. You see, his word is food for the flock. And the corporate worship of God's people is sustenance for the sheep. You see, we are fed and we are tended by being in God's word and coming and worshiping him because it is in his word that he says, come follow me. It is in his word that he says, do you love me? It is in his word that says, we love because he first loved us. And it is in corporate worship where all these are reminded to us week after week after week. Where we come and we confess our failings, the ways that we have denied him, but then we hear spoken over us the grace of our Lord Jesus. That he welcomes us back in. That we were not on the outside looking in, but that we are part of his people. You see, Jesus, God tends and feeds us by his word and by his worship. And we need this reminder. We need this feeding. We need this tending because so very quickly we forget. And so very quickly we turn our attention away from the one that we are called to follow. I mean, that's what happens to Peter in verse 21. Right? He gets distracted, and Peter is at his most Peter-esque. <laughs> right? I mean, look at verse 21. Excuse me, yeah, verse 20 and 21. Peter sees John following behind he and Jesus. And then Peter, in verse 21, when he saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Okay, now think about that for a second. Peter has just been restored. He's just been forgiven, right? Like, there. It's a new day, right? Like the, the clouds have parted, the sun is shining, there is a spring in his step, right? He is renewed, he is forgiven, and moments, I mean, just seconds afterwards, what does he say? Well, what about that guy? <laughs> oh, Peter, like, what are you doing, dude? Like, why are you concerned about John? Jesus just saved you, he just renewed you, he forgave you. Worry about what he has called you to. What about him? You know, it's funny. I, I mean, I laugh at Peter, but the truth is, is I need to laugh at myself. Because I do that. And y'all do it too. We, we are convinced, we are sure of what God is calling us to do, that we are to be generous, that we're to use our gifts for the service of others, that we are to love our God and our neighbor. We are convinced of what he is calling us to do and how we are to follow him, and yet we still ask all the time, what about that guy? I know what you're calling me to do, but what about her? And you know, the truth is, is that when we ask that question, what about him, what about her, it's really less about them and it's more about us. Because under the surface of that question, what about him, we're really asking, why me? That's what we're asking. Like, why don't I have the opportunities that she has? Why don't I have the gifts that you have given him? 
why don't I have the family that they have? Why don't I? Peter did it, and we do it. And what does Jesus say to us in the midst of that? Well, verse 22, he says to Peter, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Do you hear what he's saying? Basically, he's saying, Peter, you don't worry about what I've called John to do. You worry about what I've called you to do. I have called you to come and follow me. Don't, don't worry about John. I've got a plan for him. I can take care of it, Peter. You worry about what I have called you to. And that's what he says to us. You see, our, our focus is, is not to be upon what God is calling others to do, but our focus is to be on what God has called us to do. That we are to follow him in a singular focus. That we are to be consumed, not with the places that others are being called to, but the place that Jesus is calling us to. That that's what it means to love him. Is to follow him wherever he may lead. Now for many of us, it doesn't, it's probably not going to mean that it's going to lead to our martyrdom like it did Peter. But it may mean that we are being called into difficult places. And to engage with difficult people. It may mean that we, we don't get all of our dreams that we had fulfilled. It may mean that we are called to give of ourselves in ways we never thought of. But he calls us to follow him. And to follow him because he is the one who has loved us. He is the one who has renewed us. And so how can we not follow him? How can, we, how can we not be singularly focused upon where he is calling me and where he is calling you and where he is calling us? How can we not focus upon him? Because he is the one who has redeemed us. He is the one who has renewed us. He has not left us outside looking in, but he has brought us back. You know, a year after uh, that infamous uh, act by Steve Bartman, uh, he was still on the outside looking in. Uh, he wasn't going to any Cubs games anymore. Uh, his picture was still plastered, and every time they talked about how the Cubs were so close, his picture went up on ESPN. And everybody remembered the Bartman game. His, the seat where he sat is now a tourist attraction. A year after that happened, a man went and purchased the ball that he knocked away for over $100,000. And he took that ball, and in a public ceremony, they blew it up. <laughs> they detonated it. It's awesome. They blew it up, and different parts of it are in different restaurants, and, and they've, they've done other things. They've, like, burned other parts of it, and someone boiled it and used the vapor in, like, some drink or a meal or something. It was kind of weird, but, but they were doing all these sorts of things. But they blew it up as a, as a way of trying to bring him back to say, you know, we're moving on. But he still didn't go to any games. And he still didn't go and cheer on his beloved Cubs. But in 2016, the Cubs finally won the World Series. They finally won the World Series, and, and as a way of bringing him back into the family, the team president for the Chicago Cubs presented Steve Bartman, this man who had been on the outside looking in, he presented him with a World Series championship ring. 
And this is a way of saying you're one of us. Welcome back to the family. You're no longer on the outside looking in, but you are part of us. And friends, it's with even greater significance and far more importance and with eternal implications that Jesus did the same thing for Peter. And he does for us. That for all who love him, he renews us and restores us and redeems us. And he says, come follow me. And so if you love him, let us follow. And let us pray. Our God and our King, we do thank you. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves or our own devices. But by your grace and your mercy, you have redeemed us. You have renewed us. You have made us your own. And so we ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that we would follow after him with a singular focus, that we would be consumed with what it means to love you and to honor you with all of our lives. Help us this day and tomorrow and all of our days to love you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.